Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And if you listen to only one education policy and education politics related podcast between now and the end of the year, we're glad that this is the one you're listening to, <laughs> which is kind of our way of saying that this may be our last episode of Extra Credit until the year 2019. We'll get you caught up on some things that have happened this week and... Uh, maybe set the stage for what we'll be talking about come January. First thing I want to get to is a new batch of numbers that are always interesting when we get them. Uh, The new statewide student enrollment figures, we know a little bit about what's going on around the state and what's going on in the districts. Yeah, we got some new numbers and uh, just right off the bat, statewide K-12 public school enrollment in the state of Idaho uh, is up again this year. Uh, just over 306,000 public school students statewide is the number that was reported by the state. And we had an article uh, about that. And and so that's not surprising because what it's we've been seen... been going on for years. We've seen, and it's been going on for years and we see all these articles about Idaho, the fastest growing state in the nation, and Boise, one of the fastest growing uh, cities. And uh, so that's not surprising. But enrollment is poised to become... Super important, much more important in the state of Idaho in terms of the data itself. And that's a story uh, that I was working on this week. And just to kind of, by way of context here, the reason that enrollment is going to become so important is because one of the big issues before the 2019 legislature is going to be this proposed rewrite of the school funding formula, right? Kevin, you and I Mm -hmm. have covered that almost for the past three years, that interim committee uh, that's been looking at the state funding formula. Recently, um, this fall, they shut down. They issued their recommendation that the state move from its attendance-based method of enrollment uh, to enrollment-based method of enrollment. And so that's going to be one of the biggest issues of the 2019 session, but it also really underscores how important this enrollment data is and how much more it would how much more important it would become under a change, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what Devin did in his story was he looked at some of the areas where we're seeing enrollment growth and we're seeing enrollment decreases. Um, and some of the areas of growth uh, should come as no surprise. West Ada, the state's largest district, again, Uh, seeing a big increase in enrollment. One of the statistical outliers is the Oneida School District, way down in the southeast corner of the state, saw a pretty large increase in enrollment. And if you go back and you remember, uh, as as Devin pointed out in his story, a lot of that is kind of a paper increase in enrollment because of some... uh, an arrangement that Oneida has to provide... uh, support to homeschool students who, in most cases, never even set foot in, in a school right. in the Oneida School District. So you've got those big increases in, in those areas. But you also see some districts where enrollment has dropped, and that may be all the more important as the state shifts to an enrollment-based model. One example is the Boise School District. And I think that would surprise just a lot of casual folks because Boise is the largest city in the state, because the state is growing in the way that it is. I think that it it almost sort of intuitively doesn't make sense, but it is true, uh, and we've looked at the numbers, and you've taken a little bit closer look at the numbers. Um, 
Yeah. But particularly yeah. at the elementary school level, right? In the it, Boise school district? It's really kind of interesting what's going on with those numbers in Boise. Uh, not just because of the, the possible change in the way we distribute school dollars. It tells you a lot about what's happening in a community in terms of demographics and in terms of school choice. So in spite of all the growth that's going on in the Boise area, enrollment has dropped in the Boise school district by several hundred students. And that that number is not a static number. It changes month to month. When a, a district that big, a, a, a sample size that large, of course they're going to be fluctuations. Kiddos are flowing in and out of the Boise yep. schools on almost a daily basis. So uh, the, num- the gap from... 2017 to 2018, I think it was more more than 400 students at the start of the year. It narrowed some. It's kind of ballooned back up a little bit. But what's going on in Boise, and why is this happening in spite of the growth of the city of Boise? Well, a couple of things. Um, the Boise district says that they're seeing uh, some students leaving the traditional schools for charter schools in the Boise area. So that's contributing to a decline in enrollment. Uh, also seeing some students and some families leaving Boise because of, I think it's fair to say, because of the increasing price of housing or yeah. the increased price of rentals in Boise, maybe going to communities outside of Boise where housing costs are lower. So you know, perhaps what you're seeing in terms of an enrollment decline in Boise would correlate with maybe an enrollment increase in a CUNA or West Ada, like we talked about already. When what's also interesting about what's happening with with Boise's enrollment is that uh, the district is seeing an increase in enrollment all year long at the high schools, at the secondary schools, so so junior highs and high schools alike. But they're seeing a drop in an elementary enrollment, and that may translate down the road. That may be a long term pattern that could have some serious implications for Boise. If you've got a decline in elementary school enrollment right now, well, stands to reason you could well have a decline in enrollment at the junior high and high school level as those kids move their way through the system. So a lot to look at. And it's really interesting for those of us who kind of geek out on demographics. These enrollment numbers tell you a lot about what's going on in a community and what's going on in the community economy and what's happening at the family level as families decide where to live and where to send their kids. Really fascinating stuff. And if you want to head over to the homepage at www.idahoednews.org, take a look around, look at some of the snapshots we've got out there, uh, maybe find out a little bit more about what's going on closer to where you live. But interesting stuff for Boise, but that's got to be on the administration's mind as they look at this potential change to a new funding formula driven by enrollment. And if the funding formula sends money to school districts based on enrollment and would send more money to school districts based on an increase in enrollment. That's what folks are concerned about when they talk about the winners and losers um, that would be apparent that would sort of be yielded by the change in this funding formula situation. I'm working on an article this week, and we had to record the podcast just a little bit early, so for the latest and greatest information, head to the website. But I'm working on a story right now for publication this week, kind of taking a look at some of the technical changes that would have to go along with a change from attendance to enrollment. It almost sort of seems like semantics when you say it out loud, but it does get more complicated than just waving a magic wand 
uh, and saying, we're going to change from attendance to enrollment and here's your check. And so one of the things that I'm really getting into is that we've talked about the attendance-based, the current school funding model, which is unchanged since the mid-1990s, right, Kevin? And the laws and the way we count students and track attendance and, and send money to school districts, the law has not changed to sort of catch up with the 21st century education landscape, right? That was all before... That's been the whole idea behind this. Right. That's why you need to make this change. Right. And so that, obviously, the current formula predates things like online virtual schools. It, it really doesn't address student mobility. It doesn't address fractional uh, enrollment. And so it gets a little bit technical, and I apologize for that, but it's important. And that's why we're taking a look at it. But I looked at some of the spreadsheets with our data analyst, Randy Schrader, over the past couple weeks, some of the new enrollment numbers coming out from the state right now. And it gets a little tricky, but the state will have to put some rules and regulations together on how to count students uh, if we do make this change to enrollment. And that sounds silly, right? Well, why would there be need to be rules about how we count students? Because if you look at the way the enrollment numbers are tabulated today, they don't take into account fractional enrollment in a case where maybe you go to your traditional public high school for uh, six out of seven periods a day, but you go to a charter technical school uh, for one out of seven periods a day. H- how do you divide up um, which school gets funding uh, for that student? What about the homeschool student who attends a traditional brick-and-mortar school for uh, a foreign language class or, or a technical a class? Or taking a dual-credit class in an adjoining school district. Or taking or, a dual-credit class. piping into an online dual-credit class or, or what have you. And I mean, so I talked to the superintendent of the Emmett school district, uh, Wayne Rush, and talk to him a little bit about what it would take to make this change because they have one of those uh, technical schools in their district. And about 595 kids attend some sort of classes at that technical school, but almost none of them go to that technical school full-time during the academic day. They go to the traditional Emmett High School. And so how do you count those kids? And so the state will need to make some new rules and some new regulations to define What's full-time enrollment? What what does 1.0 equal? And then how do we fund uh, half-time enrollment or overflow enrollment? What about the kid that comes in and takes an extra course, whether it's a dual credit course or a night course? Um, how how do they handle funding on that? How do they do they do multiple enrollment counts throughout the year? You mentioned kind of the dynamic situation in Boise where uh, the gap widened and then narrowed. Uh, So do they have multiple enrollment counts throughout the year or do they have just one? Uh, So there will need to be some uh, kind of wonky technical rules about what is full-time enrollment, what is fractional enrollment, what is overload enrollment, and how do you fund that? And then on top of that, you've got the different demographic weights for the size of a school or district and for whether or not a student is at risk or an English language learner or uh, coming from a family of poverty. So just trying to give the reader and the listener a little bit of a sense of how technical a change this is going to be and how difficult it will be for the state. If you want a little bit more specifics to hear from a couple superintendents and to hear from the State Department of Education, you can check my story. It will be posted uh, at the homepage at www.idahoednews.org. 
So just in case you thought that it was easy to count students, it's obviously not. It's, it's a much more complicated thing. It is easier, however, to count things like campaign dollars. And we, we got a new round of campaign finance reports uh, that came out last week. This one kind of looks at sort of the run up to the election and what happened in those final couple of weeks before the election and right after the election. Yeah, we're a month out, no, a little over a month out from November's general election. We obviously know uh, the winners and losers, but it was important for you in terms of transparency and accountability to sort of look at those last minute fundraising reports that came in in the days leading up to the uh, November general election. And what were some of the trends you noticed, I guess, starting with the, let's focus on the state uh, superintendent's right. and that's race. that's the one race I looked yeah. at. Um, I focused in on the superintendent's race. And what we saw was probably more or less what we expected to see. The trend continuing where Cindy Wilson, the Democratic challenger, outraised and outspent uh, Republican incumbent Sherry Ibarra. We now know that for the course of the year, up until mid-November, uh, Wilson outraised Ibarra by about a three-to-one ratio. And what's interesting about that three-to-one ratio is that that really doesn't tell the whole story. Right. Um, it doesn't account for the third-party contributions in this campaign. And that's where, if you remember the ads that you saw in the final couple of weeks of the campaign, whether it was the ad that said that Sherry Ibarra couldn't be trusted to run the state schools or the one that really focused on Cindy Wilson and touted her experience in the classroom or experience on the State Board of Correction, all of those ads, and we're talking about $400,000 worth of ads as we now know through the, the Sunshine Reports, all of those were paid for by third parties. Uh, the money did not come from uh, Cindy Wilson's campaign per se. We also know exactly how much uh, Frank Vandersloot and his company, Mello Luca Incorporated, and another Vandersloot Holding, Riverbend Management, we know now how much uh, he put into various apparatuses to... Uh, fund Cindy Wilson's campaign. We know that that's now well over $15,000 that came from Vandersloot or affiliated uh, Vandersloot Holdings. Yeah, again, lot lot like what we saw in 2014, Cherry Barra winning despite being heavily outraised and heavily outspent. We'll get one more report, by the way. We'll get the final numbers in January. That's the year-end yeah, review uh, that, that covers everything from calendar year 2018. It's really more of a cleanup document. We'll watch it and we will report about it. But, you know, again, what we saw was, in, in this case, money may have made the race closer, but money did not it did not prove to be enough to, uh, you know, push uh, Cindy Wilson over the finish line. At this point, we can't say... That it was a fluke uh, because four, four years, years ago, ago yeah. uh, Superintendent Ybarra ran a non-traditional campaign, didn't raise a lot of money, uh, emerged from a four-way Republican primary, and then won the uh, November general election four years ago. Similar story uh, this year. And so I know there's a lot of factors in play. Uh, obviously, uh, the Republican brand is strong and alive and well in Idaho, in case there was any doubt about that. Uh, and obviously, Superintendent Ibarra had uh, name recognition this time around, uh, familiarity with the voters as the incumbent. Power of incumbency is powerful. Um, 
But I mean, Superintendent Ibarra has always told us that she will not behave and act like a traditional politician and she won't campaign as one. And I guess at this point, I need to start believing her uh, because it's not a fluke. Um, she did it her way and she's undefeated at this point. But contributions are always political and that's yeah. what makes them interesting to read. It's, oh, it's, it's fascinating. Fun. It's yeah. always fun to see you know, who gave to, in this case, the victorious candidate, um, a couple of names that jumped out at me. Megan Blanksma was a large contributor to uh, to Abar's campaign. Who's a new Megan? member of House Leadership? She's a new member of House Leadership. She is now the uh, House uh, Majority Caucus Chair, so she will be the spokeswoman for the Republican Caucus when they come out of caucus meetings. Yep. Some, some Elmore County ties there. Uh, Blanksma represents Elmore County. She's from Hammett. Uh, as we all know, Sherry Abara, a former educator in the Mountain Home School District. Another interesting contribution to the Abara camp, Kathy Ann Nonini, who is she? Well, she's the wife of former state senator Bob Nonini, uh, unsuccessful lieutenant governor's candidate. She gave a fairly large contribution to Abara in the run-up to the campaign. Just, you know, it's always interesting to see where the money comes from and a sense of where the money goes. So we've got the rundown at idahoaidnews.org. We've got the links to all of the reports, both the candidates' reports and the third-party contributions, so you can get caught up there. Yeah, good, good stuff. Uh, good stuff for sure. There, you are also tracking um, some other financial numbers uh, this week, and this really could get interesting during the upcoming legislative session. But you've look, been looking at the budget picture and the revenue numbers ahead of the new legislative session. And there's probably some concern going on about revenues missing their mark. It's almost yeah. becoming a trend at this point. But what did you find out and what are folks saying about what might be the issue? Well, it's definitely a trend and it can't be a an encouraging trend no. if you're a legislator, especially if you're a legislative budget writer. So here's the deal. At this point, and now we're five months into the budget year because the budget year began yep. on July, July 1. 1. So what we're seeing right now in terms of revenue coming into the state, Idaho is about $63 million shy of where legislators and budget analysts expected the state to be in terms of tax collections. So we're $63 million shy of projections. And where are we shy on projections? This is interesting, too. It's, it's in individual income tax contributions. It's in the withholdings that are taken out of your paycheck and mine every time you get a check. So right now, what what seems to be happening, what seems to be the conventional wisdom, and, and Rebecca Boone from the Associated Press did a, did a good story about this this week, talking to uh, Paul Headley uh, with the Legislative Services Office, budget analyst for the state. What Headley thinks is happening and what he told uh, what he told Becky Boone about this is taxpayers are not fully synced up with the changes in federal and state tax codes. So because, so withhold, income, because income tax was cut by the legislature. Right, right, year. right. And, and was cut in a way to comply uh, with the changes in federal code. So it's all very complicated and it's all very new. And the bottom line of it is individual income tax withholdings are well below what the state expected. Everything else seems to be doing pretty well, which would kind of suggest that this isn't like a full-on, across-the-board economic downturn because corporate income tax uh, collections are ahead of pace. Sales tax, which is really sort of your real-time 
indication of what the economy is doing and how people are behaving in the economy. Well, sales tax numbers are ahead of projections. So it's not like people are hunkering down, holding on to their money, not spending in the, you know, not going to you know, grocery stores or going to the mall right. or, or what have you. So what Hadley is suggesting to, to Becky Boone in, in the story is the hope and the expectation is that the numbers are going to rebound in April, that when people have to pay their big lump sum of, of taxes for 2018, you know, that dreaded date in yeah. mid-April when we all cut that check, uh, those of us who owe, the expectation is that that's when you're going to see a surge of money coming into state coffers. But here's the gamble. Here's why it yeah, gets so this interesting. this is why it gets interesting. This is where it really does get interesting and becomes politically interesting and it becomes a really tough decision decision for legislative budget writers. In effect, you're you're betting that these monies are going to come in in April. If you budget with the expectation that these monies are coming in, you better hope you're right because uh, if, if they come in and they meet projections and we catch up in terms of individual income taxes, then okay, everything's uh, everything all came out in the end. But if the money doesn't come in, it doesn't come in as projected, and you've spent on state programs, including K-12, expecting money that didn't arrive, then you get a real problem on your hands. Then you do have to start to dip into savings accounts, uh, budget reserves. Then things get really interesting really quickly. So all of this is really wonky, and we'll have a lot more to say about this in January, and we'll have a lot more to say about it uh, when the AP does its legislative preview and we hear from governor-elect Little and we hear from legislative leaders, it's going to be really interesting to see how do legislators behave when they see this dip in income tax numbers and how do they budget, how do they project revenue, because they project revenue before they do the budget, they do kind of an expectation of how much money is coming in. If they take kind of a bearish approach to the economy and say, look, we think we're in a downturn, we're going to you know, ramp down revenue projections, ramp down spending accordingly, or do they take more of a bullish approach and, you know, kind of bet on the idea that the money's going to come in? That's that's the big decision that legislators are going to face really early in this legislative session. And, and history tells me, watching the legislature do this for years, legislators tend to be very skittish and they tend to be very, they, their default tends to be to budget conservatively and do conservative revenue estimates. So it would be a real surprise to me and it would be kind of a break in precedent if legislators looked at this and said, oh, it's going to come in. We're fine. Yeah, let, let's let's spend, uh, you know, like we don't have a, a dilemma here. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we'll see. I, I, okay. I think that's a solid point. I want to say the same thing you did in a slightly different way. The legislature will have to make these decisions well before we know what the April tax collections are going to be, right? In the first weeks of January, they will come up with a revenue target that will play into the budget setting process. They will be setting the state budget long about late February, March time period, well before we know what those April tax collection numbers are going to be. And so I think you're right. In a conservative legislative environment, coming off an election like we did um, I, I, we've already heard them talk about it, and there was already some talk about it that our colleagues in the media reported uh, out of the Taxpayers' Convention uh, last week, uh, some warnings from some economists. I've talked to Speaker of the House Scott Bedke about it. I will have more on that 
in a story we're looking to publish long about January 2nd. Um, but legislators yeah. have already noticed this in a conservative legislative environment where what they know today is today we are millions of dollars behind projections. That's what's going to be on their mind as they step, set, step, set state budgets. And so what we know is that K-12 public education is the largest general fund expense to the state of Idaho every year. Uh, the Idaho legislature made a promise almost five years ago uh, to fund five consecutive years of teacher raises under the career ladder. But there's going to be a lot of competition for state resources this year and perhaps a more conservative budget environment than we've seen in maybe four or five years or right. so and, and since we came out of the Great Recession. Um, really could be an interesting session and, from a budget and, and standpoint. And with these revenue numbers and with the uncertainty about the revenue, it's a little bit like playing Texas Hold'em, and mm-hmm. now you have, to, you have to make a big bet right now after the flop. You, you don't know what those final two cards are. They haven't been turned over yet. The flop doesn't look real good. <laughs> if, if you're, I love this analogy. I should have used this five minutes ago. It just finally dawned on me as we talked about it. I mean, you know, you know what your two cards are, you know what, you know, but you don't know what the final two unturned cards look like and how aggressively do you wager right now if you're a member of the uh, the budget? Committee? I love that analogy. That's exactly the situation that they're in. And I think it's going to be fascinating. And when we talk about competition for state resources and budget requests for school safety and teacher raises and discretionary spending, and then we get into prisons and healthcare, and they do talk about how there is going to be a fiscal impact with the voter initiative to expand Medicaid. It could be a wild session from a budgetary standpoint. And as we know from having sat there day in and day out for, I I think this will be my ninth consecutive legislative session, the budget really drives state government and it really drives the legislative session. And it's going to drive policy. It's going to drive decisions like what do you do with the funding formula. It's going to drive decisions about the career ladder, about Medicaid expansion, about any kind of uh, big policy decision, big spending decision. It all begins with the budget, which all begins with the revenue projections. So a lot that we will get to come January. We've got a new governor. We've got new leaders of the Joint Budget Setting Committee. It's going to be fascinating, but that's why we're there every day, right? Yep, that's, and that's where we will be uh, starting that first week in January. So, you know, we'll have a lot more to say about this in our, probably our next podcast, because we reserve the right to do an emergency podcast the next couple of weeks. Don't count on it. Don't uh, plan your holidays around it. But we'll be back for sure the first week of January. And it really does kind of hit the ground running really quickly that first week of January, even before the legislature yeah. gets town. Uh, the Thursday before the start of the legislative session, January 3rd, we'll have the uh, AP legislative preview. We'll hear from Governor-elect Little. We'll hear from legislative leaders about the revenue picture, about the policy picture. Uh, so we'll have a lot to chew on on Thursday and a lot to talk about in that uh pre-legislative session podcast, uh, which we will definitely have on January 4th. (laughs) No debate about that. You can count on that podcast for sure. Yeah, count on that for sure. May or may not be back next week. We're kind of leaning towards not being back um, until after the first of the year. There's a couple of different reasons why, um, but mostly so that we can get geared up for the legislative session and also maybe take a little bit of time off. Uh, But anyways, I hope that everybody listening uh, has a great holiday season, has a Merry Christmas, gets to spend time with friends and family, and enjoy a New Year's celebration. 
Um, but thank you so much as always. We had a record-breaking year both on the podcast and at Idaho Education News. And so that's what I'm thinking about this type yeah. of year is how grateful we are to each and every one of our readers and, and listeners. listeners. Yes, and um, thank you for, for sticking with us this year. We'll be uh, for sure back with another round of podcasts starting in January. Yeah, we will be back with the podcast in 2019. We will be at the legislative session every day covering all the education meetings, covering the big budget hearings, uh, and tracking all the big K-12 policy debates as we look at a new funding formula and raises for teachers and a school safety initiative that the superintendent has promised to bring right out of the gates. It's going to be interesting from day one. It sort of has the feelings of maybe a long session uh, on tap. It's way too early uh, to know for sure, but I know that um, Tree Fort in <laughs> late March is gonna be is gonna be tricky this year. But I've already got my tickets. So. Uh, I think I think Tree Fort in in late March could be uh, dicey. I mean, I'm. I'm even thinking, you know, we're, we're sitting on Weezer and Pixies tickets the first Friday night in April. Could they possibly be adjourning that first Friday night in April? Yes. It, yes. Possibly anything could happen. I don't know if there are enough Weezer and Pixies fans in legislative leadership to prevent that from happening. So, but I digress. We'll, we'll, we'll be there no matter how long it takes. We'll be there for this uh, legislative session. And all kidding aside, looking forward to it. It's going to be interesting stuff. Yeah, thank you. Stuff. Thank you so much uh, for being a part of our big year at Idaho Ed News. I hope you have a great Christmas, a happy new year, and you get to spend time with your family and friends this holiday season. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and a good holiday season.